The information in this episode may be triggering for some listeners. Content about suicide, risk factors, and statistics is in this episode. If you are a teenager or a child and you are listening to this podcast episode, it is encouraged that you listen with a responsible adult or someone you trust and debrief with them after listening to this episode. The following information does not substitute your own consultation with a doctor or mental health provider. As you all know, and have probably heard by now, there have been two very notable suicides in the news in this past week. We need to have an open conversation about suicide. I, as a therapist, have no shame, stigma, or judgment when it comes to conversations about suicide. It's something I encounter often in day-to-day conversations with my clients. If I have a client that has a history of depression, I'm going to screen them for suicidality. If that's the case, I constantly assess for this risk. It is a very real threat. Suicide is one of the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States. And suicide has shown that it doesn't discriminate. I mean, look around. Seemingly happy people, famous people, are dying by suicide. And I use the word dying because that is sensitive language surrounding suicide. So like I said, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. Each year, about 45,000 Americans die by suicide. If you think about it, that's the population of a town. For every one completed suicide, 25 people attempt suicide. If you think about it, two really famous people died by suicide this week. So we can ensure that at least 50 people this week have attempted. And that's just two notable suicides. What about the ones we don't hear about? Some more interesting statistics that I'll elaborate on later. Men die by suicide 3.53 times more often than women. On average, there are 123 suicides a day. White males accounted for 7 of 10 suicides in 2016. Firearms account for 51% of all suicides in 2016. 51%. The rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men in particular. These statistics are from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP.org. So let's break it down. Let's talk about gender differences with suicide. So statistics show that women think about and attempt suicide at significantly higher rates than men. On top of that, men have more completed suicides than women because, for whatever reason, women choose methods that aren't as lethal to attempt suicide. For example, taking pills, cutting, uh, drinking poison, things like that. Things that have a little bit of a higher survival rate. Men, however, have more lethal and aggressive means, ways that they complete suicide. So for example, a male may use a gun or may use a knife or something to hang themselves with. And these often are lethal and irreversible methods. By the time you get somebody to the hospital with such an injury, they may have already been pronounced dead. Let me talk to you a little bit about how a therapist might assess for suicide. Number one, 
What I want to ask is straight up, do you feel like killing yourself? It is better to ask someone straight up and straightforwardly about suicide so that you can get a direct answer versus avoiding the question or beating around the bush, as they say. Another thing we want to assess for is suicide history. Have you ever felt that way before? Maybe right now you don't feel this way. Or maybe right now you do feel this way, like you want to die or you want to kill yourself. But have you ever in the past? This is a really important question because statistics show that people with a history of suicide attempts have a higher risk of suicide or of completing suicide. The next question I ask is, has anybody around you ever died by suicide? This is something that you may not want to dive too deeply into with your friends or family, but I do as a therapist. So if you're in a clinical setting and you go to a therapist, don't be surprised if they ask you about family history or any social history of suicides in your life. There's this phenomenon called contagion, contagioso, that's what it reminds me of, which means contagious, right? The issue with these high-profile suicides is that hearing about other people's suicides can be triggering to other people, causing a contagious type of effect, where other people's suicidality can get triggered, meaning that the triggered person will be more likely to attempt suicide in the near future. Being exposed to these high-profile suicides may not be something we can avoid, but it's something we can decrease and control within our own households. Now, if as a therapist I hear you say, no, I don't feel like hurting myself or killing myself, and no, nobody in my family or any of my friends in my circle has ever died by suicide, my assessment does not stop there. I continue to ask a few other questions. So something you might hear a therapist say are things like, have you ever had a plan to die by suicide? If you could kill yourself, how would you do it? Then I would ask for details about. Then I also want to know how detailed their plan is. I think the more detailed the plan, the more imminent the risk is. So for example, if somebody says, Oh, one time I thought about jumping off of a bridge, but I don't feel that way anymore. Versus something very specific, such as my plan is that right now when I go home at 7 p.m. after I finish writing my suicide note, I'm going to sit in my room. I'm going to get my dad's gun from his closet. I'm going to load it with whatever type of bullets they are. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to pray real quick. And then I'm going to call all my friends to make sure that I said goodbye to everybody. And then at about 9 or 9.15 p.m., I plan on pulling the trigger because that'll be right before my parents get home. And I want them to discover me. So that is a very detailed plan. The more detailed the plan, the more imminent the risk, and the quicker the intervention has to be. That's why it's important to ask about a plan. Another critical area of assessment is means means as in how will they carry out their plan do they have access to lethal weapons such as guns lots of swords and knives any poisonous substances toxins bleach cleaning agents pills medications access to a really high building do they have to cross a bridge on their way home things like that 
So the means in which they want to carry out their suicide plan is what to look for. A quick tip about means is to go in and do a whole house sweep, especially a person's bedroom. Going in, I'm focusing on anything that can be potentially dangerous, such as knives, guns, weapons, chemicals, cleaning agents, medications. Everything needs to be up, put up, and locked away to ensure the safety of the person who has exhibited signs of suicidal ideation. Another area of assessment is intent. So does the person intend on carrying out their plan? If they say yes, that is clear intention that they want to carry out or will carry out their suicide. I want to assess if their intention is imminent and strong or if it's ambivalent or unclear or if it's something that they've just thought about and it's very passive. Either way, ambivalence or strong intention, every suicidal outcry or ideation should be taken seriously. So this is where things get tricky. We have to kind of go based on the honor system. We can assess surroundings and environment and ask other people about their whereabouts and try to have support people and crisis mobile units and have all kinds of people intervene and help out and support. But if a person straight up lies to us, How are we going to tell if they're lying? Research has shown that suicide contracts where a patient or a client signs something that says, I promise not to kill myself, don't work. Research shows that it doesn't work. So this is a really, really hard thing to assess. If somebody lied to me in my office and I did everything I could to assess and protect this person and they still complete suicide, I would say that doing everything I can to assess is the most important thing because humans truly are unpredictable and that's what makes suicide so difficult. There are people that even if they are hospitalized in psychiatric hospitals are able to complete suicide even under the closest watch. So unpredictability is so so hard to deal with especially when it comes to this topic. So if you've stuck with me this long, I'm proud of you for sticking it through because I know that this isn't easy stuff to hear about. It's depressing and it's difficult. Let's go ahead and jump into risk factors. The list for risk factors can go on and on and on. What I want to talk to you about is resilience factors, things that are protective against suicide. So some of the things that I can think of off the top of my head are social support, friends, family members, people who are non-judgmental and trustworthy that surround the person who's depressed or is thinking about suicide. Another protective factor is access to services, access to doctors, psychiatrists, therapists, school counselors, teachers, a trusted adult, either doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, school counselors, social workers, anybody that can help out. These are protective factors. Another thing that can prevent suicide is, of course, not having any access to means such as access to lethal weapons, toxic substances, pills. Everything is either thrown away or locked away. Other protective factors that you may not think of immediately are groups or things or people that keep you accountable, such as pets, 
coworkers, teammates, church, being involved. So lots of connectivity and a lot of belonging is definitely going to be a strong protective factor. So now you may be wondering, what are the next steps? What can I do for someone who I think may be suicidal? First of all, you can be there for them. If you decide to be there for them, you can straight up ask them if they've been thinking of hurting themselves. You can talk openly about suicide. You can ask the hard questions because if you don't ask the hard questions, it might show that you're afraid of broaching the topic. So this is important because if you're afraid and you feel shameful, that person might feel ashamed. And stigma and shame are super related. So what we want to do is create a stigma-free environment to help that person who may be depressed or experiencing suicidal thoughts to express themselves freely with someone. If you allow this person to express themselves freely, also be prepared to follow up. Schedule some phone dates. Talk to them maybe weekly. Schedule some meetings. Do some things where you feel like you can help them out. If you feel like you cannot really invest the time or be accountable for this person, give them some resources. One good one that you can give them is the suicide hotline. The one that they can text is 741-741. That's 741 repeated twice. They can text that line at any time and a person can offer brief counseling and de-escalation. You may want to give them the website for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is AFSP.org. If they click on the Find Support tab, then they'll find lots of different options that they can click on, such as, I've lost someone, I'm having thoughts of suicide, I'm worried someone might be at risk, or I've made an attempt, or my loved one has made an attempt. All of these choices are available at AFSP.org. You can also have them call 1-800-273-8255-1-800-273-8255. And that's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can call for the person or they can call themselves and brief counseling is offered to de-escalate or to help get help for your loved one. I hope this short episode and guide to suicide assessment has been helpful to you. Again, if you feel triggered by this information, debrief with someone. Talk about it. Don't stay silent. Silence, stigma, and isolation are the enemies of mental health. You can find more resources on my podcast webpage, which is www.wondercounselor.podbean.com. If you want to make a monthly donation to keep this podcast going, you can visit www.patron.podbean.com slash wondercounselor. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at wondercounselor or through the eyes of a therapist. Thanks for joining me, Crystal Martinez Acosta, Licensed Professional Counselor. Until next time.